You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. There's the three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's with you, leads us to Christ, draws us. He's in you when you repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But then he wants to come in God's time and according to God's will upon us. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once you're initially baptized in the Holy Spirit, then Ephesians says you're to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to jump ahead of this one. Somebody asked D.L. Moody one time, why do we have to keep being refilled? You know what Moody said? Because we leak. Did you know that there are three aspects to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? In today's message from Pastor Danny, he teaches that the Holy Spirit ministers by drawing you to Christ, dwelling inside of you, leading you to repentance and receiving Christ as Lord, and that he comes upon you through baptism. Once you've received Christ as Lord and have been baptized, it's important to keep being filled by the Holy Spirit. The ways to be filled by the Holy Spirit are by staying in God's Word and prayer. Now here's Pastor Danny in Acts chapter 18. There's times, though, when God draws us. One of those times was when I was a teenager in high school. We were at a crusade, the Freddie Gage Crusade, in my hometown of Hartsville, South Carolina. Amazing. Freddie Gage grew up on the streets of Houston. He was a gang leader. Bad dude. Got gloriously saved, became an evangelist. My pastor invited him, and, and we hosted at the football stadium this Freddie Gage Crusade for a whole week. I was amazed how many people in my hometown came out. Pretty much the majority of the middle school and the high school were there every night at the football stadium, packing the place out. I'll never forget one night the invitation was given, and I was so convicted. I'm standing beside my buddy Rodney Bird. Neither one of us Christians, neither one of us. And I looked over at Rodney. I can tell we're both convicted. We're both convicted. I see tears in his eyes. He says, Danny, let's go. And I stood there frozen, and I refused. And that wasn't the only time I refused. I refused many times. In those moments, I knew God was calling me. I'm thankful that he did not give up on me before I said yes. I'm so thankful. I am so thankful, Lord. The danger of repeatedly refusing to really repent and give your life to Jesus Christ, the danger, there's more than one. Matthew 13, quoting The prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, for this people's heart has become calloused. It's a simple illustration. I've used it often. I'm going to use it again. I have on both hands calluses, which hopefully proves I'm not a a lazy bum. (laughs) And I could take a pen right now, and I could stick it right here under this callus, just below it, and I would feel it, and it, it would hurt. I would get the point. I can take that same needle. I can put it in this callus. 
And I can sing lolly doo all day, you know, because there's no, no pain. Why? It's the same point. But here, there's sensitivity. Here, there used to be sensitivity. As a matter of fact, when the callus was being formed, it was extra sensitive. But now, over time, it's hardened. And that's one great danger of repeatedly refusing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the drawing by the Father to repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's another danger. I'm not going to turn and read it, but you read about it in Romans chapter 1. And three times God says it. People that had the knowledge of God but refused the knowledge of God and decided to go their own way. And three times it says so in God's time. And I don't know what time that is. That's God. Three times it says God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. In other words, there are times in some people's lives that God says, you've refused me enough times now, then you want to go your way. I won't bother you anymore. I'll just let you go. Terrible place to be. Awful place to be. Repentance and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior then opens the door for the second baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was taught early on my Baptist background, and I'm not knocking them for this, but I learned from the scriptures differently. Scriptures first, experience second. I was taught that you were baptized into the body of Christ. Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you got the Holy Spirit, and that's it. They never told me, like Apollos. They were learned. They had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. They taught about Jesus accurately, but they did not know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 17, Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is with you, and he will be in you. And then he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift, and he'll come upon you. And those are the three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and there, you find them clearly in the Greek terms used in these verses. Let me give you the three Greek terms. One is, he said, John 14, he is with you. It means beside. Some people call the Holy Spirit the paraclete. That means he's the one who comes along beside and encourages and things like that, you know. But he comes beside you. The Holy Spirit is the one that leads us to Christ. He's the one that brings the conviction and leads us to Christ. He's with us. And then the second, he'll be in you. Different Greek term. He's with you. He shall be in you. Now, John 20, 22, after the resurrection, Jesus breathed on the disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's my belief that now the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the believer, that as soon as you believe in Christ, he comes to live in you. Now, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So you have to have the Holy Spirit based on that verse. You have to have the Holy Spirit. But then there's a third ministry, and it's described by this Greek term. And it's the one used in places like Acts chapter 1, when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come on or upon you. It's this Greek term right here. And there's the three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's with you, leads us to Christ, draws us. He's in you when you repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But then he wants to come in God's time and according to God's will, upon us. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit.
Once you're initially baptized in the Holy Spirit, then Ephesians says you're to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to jump ahead of this one. Somebody asked D.L. Moody one time, why do we have to keep being refilled? You know what Moody said? Because we leak. Now, I'm going to challenge you in the last few minutes I have, because I know we've got a lot of different backgrounds here, to let the scriptures teach you what we're talking about here. The scriptures, not your background, not your preconceived ideas. Three ministries of the Holy Spirit, with, in, upon. I was taught that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, that the supernatural gift of tongues was the ability for these disciples to speak in the various tongues of the nations represented there, and they they gave the gospel. Well, that can't be true, because if they gave the gospel, why did Peter have to get up and give the gospel? Acts 8, 11, we heard them declaring the wonders of God, the megalios, the magnificent, excellent, splendid wonders of God. Their voices were directed heavenward, which is what 1 Corinthians tells us, chapter 14, about someone who speaks in a supernatural gift of tongues. They don't speak to men, they speak to God. That's what it says. And the unique miracle at Pentecost was Everybody heard them in their own language. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul is talking about tongues in the church and trying to correct the, the abuse of tongues in the Corinthian church, he said that if, if it's ever used in a public setting, in a church meeting, there must be interpretation, which tells us that most of the time, you don't understand what they're saying. It is a language, but it's not a language you know. And it's a language of the Spirit directed heavenward. That's what the Bible says. Now, there are different uses of this supernatural gift of tongues. It's a common evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But I don't believe it's the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you'd have to take the 1 Corinthians 12 in the section where Paul says, are all prophets, are all evangelists, do all work miracles, do all speak in tongues? And the answer to those questions is no. Not everybody's a prophet. Not everybody's an event. Not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody does miracles, works of miracles, supernatural. I've I've had been prayed for by the best of them. I've been to crazy meetings where they tell you just just start saying stuff, you know. And my motor never started. God hasn't given me the gift, but God gave my wife the gift a few years ago. I'm still jealous. I'm the pastor of the church. Why why do you bypass me and give it to her? But, you know, I'm not concerned about that at all. I'm concerned about, I want the power of God on my life. I want the power of God in the ministry he's called me to, more than ever. So different things the scripture says about this supernatural gift of tongues. It can be an evidence of the baptism, but it's not the only evidence. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Prophecy is speaking for God by the Spirit to men. It's a form of prophesying every time I get up here and expound the scriptures. That's a form of prophesying. And we want to do it in a language you can understand. Be crazy if I got even spoken some supernatural tongue language and you're just going, that's a weird church. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 and 15, Paul not only mentions, but he says he practiced praying in tongues. So there's a tongue that's a prayer language, as people call it. He says, I will sing with my spirit, talking about a supernatural gift of tongues in the spirit. And so there's a praise, a worship. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, among the supernatural gifts, when it mentions tongues, it says different kinds of tongues, supernatural tongues. So not just one, and they have different purposes. 
1 Corinthians 14, 22, Paul says tongues are a sign to unbelievers. That's what happened at Pentecost. Holy Spirit's come down, comes down on these disciples, gives them a supernatural gift of tongues. They're declaring the wonders of God. Crowd gathers, sees, and hears. And the first thing they accused him of is being drunk, and Peter corrected that. But that gift of tongues was a sign because most of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had rejected Jesus, Messiah, and agreed to put him on a cross. 120 people who knew the truth about Jesus. And God baptized them with the Holy Spirit and gave a sign that they had the truth that Jesus and the Jesus they believed in is indeed the Messiah. And so it was a sign to unbelieving Israel. And it's not just New Testament. The Holy Spirit coming upon people is also Old Testament. The first king of Israel, King Saul. I'm not going to turn to it, but First Samuel chapter 10. Samuel says, here's what's going to happen when I leave you. Telling him he's going to be anointed, anointed the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And uh, you're going to meet some prophets. They're going to be singing and praising the Lord and prophesying. And when you come along, the uh, Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you're going to prophesy with them. And it happened. And the people who knew Saul said, what in the world has happened to the son of Kish? What's happened to Saul? Is he also among the prophets? Seventy elders under Moses. Moses says, the church you gave me is too big, and if this is the way it's going to be, just kill me. God says, okay, bring 70 of your elders, and I'll put the spirit that I have on you, I'll put it on them, and they'll help you in your ministry. And they come, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and it says they prophesied. But interesting, it said they did not do so again. And one of the reasons I believe is because Moses was the main voice. But God gave the sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Samson, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. And you read the story, and when he goes out and he performs some superhuman thing, you know, you go, why? How in the world did he do that? It says the Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon him. Now, there's the scripture. In the last few minutes I have, I want to give you some testimony. You heard of D.L. Moody? Most of us, a lot of us have. He writes in his book, Secret Power, the Holy Spirit in us is one thing, and the Holy Spirit upon us is another. Jim Simula, Brooklyn Tabernacle. In his book, Fresh Power, too much of our religious life is made up of programs and human ideas, talents and strategies. What is missing today is something from heaven itself. You might not know this name, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about him after I read a statement that he left for us. He's with the Lord now. Samuel Chadwick. The experience of the second gift of grace is no longer preached and testified because Christian experience, though it may have to begin in the spirit, must be perfected in the wisdom of the flesh and the culture of the schools. And he's talking about what was happening in his world. Samuel Chadwick was born north of England, 1860. Began to work in the cotton mill like his dad, with his dad when he was very young, eight years old. They were devout Methodists. He came to know Christ as a young boy. By 21, he was a pastor. He was taught and trained to prepare well-researched and interesting sermons as the sure way to bring in the crowds. He would later write, this led unconsciously to a false aim in my work. I lived and labored for my sermons and was unfortunately more concerned about their excellence and reputation than the repentance of the people. After a while, he exhausted his sermons. No real fruit in his ministry, not significant anyway. And it was around that time he heard the testimony of someone who had been revitalized by an experience with the Holy Spirit. He got desperate. And in his desperation, God came through. 
And he writes, I could not explain what had happened, but it was bigger, a bigger thing than I had ever known. There came into my soul a deep peace, a thrilling joy, a new sense of power. His next sermon, next sermon, he gives an invitation. Seven people commit their lives to Christ. That had never happened before. He says that he believes God did that to honor the last seven years of barrenness in his ministry. He got seven converts in his next sermon. Final phase of his life was principal of Cliff College, a Methodist training school for preachers. And it was here that he wrote what became a very well-known book called The Way to Pentecost. And he writes in it, I owe everything to the gift of Pentecost. Destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. Possessing fire, nothing else matters. Reuben Archer Torrey, born 1856, went to be with the Lord in 1928, better known as R.A. Torrey. He was an American evangelist, pastor, educator, and writer. Wrote over 40 books, ministered around the world as an evangelist. And he writes, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not primarily intended to make the believer happy or holy, but to make them useful. In every passage in the Bible in which results of the baptism with the Holy Spirit are mentioned, they are related to testimony and service. D.L. Moody. In 1871, Moody was pastoring Clearly, and the largest church in Chicago, hundreds and hundreds of people coming regularly to hear Moody preach. And two, now significant free Methodist ladies, we know them as Auntie Cook and Mrs. Snow, began attending Moody's church meetings. They sat on the front row. And Moody could not help but notice that through most of the services, they prayed. So Moody finally got their attention one day, and he asked them, said, it seems like you're praying through most of the service. They said, yes, we're praying for you. He said, praying for me? Pray for the unsaved. They said, no, we're praying for you. You need the power of the Spirit. Weeks passed, and Moody finally called Mrs. Snow and Auntie Cook into his office, and they discussed this power of the Spirit. At the conclusion of their time together, they prayed And Auntie Cook and Mrs. Snow left. A few days later, Moody was in New York City on his way to England to do ministry. He was walking up Wall Street in the crowds of New York. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the power of God fell upon his life. He knew he had to get away from the crowds. He went to a friend's house. He said, do you have a room I can get alone with God for a few hours? And he went into that room and had an experience with the Lord like he'd never had. (laughs) He writes, and I quote, At last I had to ask God to withhold his hand, lest I die on the spot for very joy. And then he says, the sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I'll give you one more. Oswald Chambers, anybody ever used the tremendous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest? I've used it many, many, many times. Oswald says, after I was born again, as a lad, I enjoyed the presence of Jesus Christ wonderfully, but years passed before I gave myself up thoroughly to his work. I was in Danoon College as tutor of philosophy when Dr. F.B. Meyer came and spoke about the Holy Spirit. I afterward went to my room and asked God simply and definitely for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But nothing really happened. He went on for years. He got desperate. He writes, I knew that if what I had was all the Christianity there was, the thing was a fraud. 
Then Luke eleven thirteen got a hold of me. If you then, Jesus said, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that asked him? Later, a little meeting held during a mission in the noon, a well-known lady was asked to take the after meeting. She did not speak, but she set us to prayer and then sang, touch me again, Lord. I felt nothing, but I knew emphatically my time had come and I rose to my feet. I had no vision of God, only a sheer dogged determination to take God at his word and to prove this thing for myself. And I stood up and I said so. That was bad enough, he says, but what followed was 10 times worse. After I sat down, the lady worker who knew me well said, this is very good of our brother. He has spoken like this as an example to the rest of you. I got up again and said, I got up for no one's sake. I got up for my own sake. Either Christianity is a downright fraud or I have not got hold of the right end of the stick. And then and there, I publicly claimed the gift of the Holy Spirit in dogged committal based on Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Now, I don't understand the different experiences. But you have them in the scriptures, and you have them recorded in history. Listen to Oswald Chambers tell what happened. I had no vision of heaven or of angels. I had nothing. I was as dry and empty as ever, no witness of the Holy Spirit. Then I was asked to speak at a meeting, and 40 souls came down to the front. (laughs) He says, did I praise God? No, I was terrified. I left them to the workers, and I went to a mentor of his, Mr. McGregor, and I said, Mr. McGregor, here's what just happened. And Mr. McGregor said, don't you remember, son, how you claim by faith, Luke eleven thirteen, and now God in his time has revealed his power in your life. You find the baptism of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You find the refilling in Acts chapter 4 after they're threatened by the Supreme Court. You find it in Acts chapter 8 when the revival breaks out in Samaria and Peter and John are sent and they lay hands on the disciples and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they get a sign to confirm that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. You find it in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is sent to the home of Cornelius and Centurion and a room full of uncircumcised Gentiles hear the gospel, believe in faith, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and they are given the sign, the same one as Acts chapter 2. And then you find it in Acts 19, our text for today. Twelve young disciples, I'm assuming young, and Paul saw something lacking in their life. And when he inquired, he found out it was what they were missing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul, the apostle, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18 and 19, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. I think that shocked them because he says, but in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, which tells me that Paul rarely, if ever, exercised the gift of tongues in his public ministry. But he sure exercised it in his personal devotion to the Lord. Jesus was baptized by the Spirit before he began his public ministry. There, following the Lord or following the Father's will, baptized by John the Baptist, identifying his life with the death, burial, resurrection, saying no to self and giving up his life for the will of the Father. And then when he came up from the baptism, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and came upon him. And that's when he began his public ministry. So even Jesus needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
How do you receive it? The first step is to repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you'll repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that opens the way for the privilege of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. we meet in the book of Acts weren't superheroes. They weren't angels in disguise, nor were they born with more privilege and intelligence than the average human being. These were just ordinary people doing their jobs and doing the best they could, until Jesus changed everything. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection flipped the world upside down, changing the way God was seen and opening up the reality of salvation to every person. That salvation hasn't changed. We all still need Jesus to save us from death. And just like these ordinary members of the early church, we can let the grace we've received flip our world upside down. Now we can live for Christ, sharing him with the world around us and extending the Holy Spirit to everyone we meet. We're so glad you tuned in for today's message on the living word with Pastor Danny Hodges. This ministry is a product of the messages Pastor Danny teaches at Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. If you're in the area, come join us this weekend. We meet on Saturday at 6 p.m. and again on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Join us for a time of fellowship and Bible study, digging into God's Word as a collective group of imperfect believers. Find out more at our website, ccfstpete.church. That website again is ccfstpete.church. You can listen to past messages from Pastor Danny while you're there, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's all we have time for today. Tune in next time to study more from the Book of Acts right here on The Living Word. We'll be right back. 